Good morning, church. Good morning. If you are still out in the foyer, would you please come in and join us? My name is Heather Ashley. Welcome to Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship. It is Father's Day. I'd like to wish all the fathers happy Father's Day. If you have your own children, if you are a father-like figure in someone else's life, this day is all about you, but it is also about the father to all of us. So let's stand and sing Worship to our God. Good boy. 
Good morning. My name is Ariel Bowers, and I'm the Director of Worship Ministries here at Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship. Again, a welcome to you who are here and to those of you who are online, and happy Father's Day. This is indeed our prayer for you fathers in our congregation that God would bless you and encourage you in all the ways that you show his heart to us. Today is also the day that the fundraiser for Pregnancy Concerns finishes. So Operation Baby Bottle runs from Mother's Day to Father's Day and supports families in the Tri-Cities and those helping them to choose life. It provides counseling, encouragement, and very practical support, letting them know that somebody cares. And our church sends a donation on behalf of the families in our community. And you also have been collecting coins, writing checks, um, grabbing a card, donating it online. And so if you brought your donation bottle today, because today is the last day that we are collecting them, you can bring it to the welcome desk after the service, or you can hand it to me. And during the week, we will gather them all together and send them to pregnancy concerns. So I'd like to take a moment to pray for pregnancy concerns and pray for the fathers here today. Dear Heavenly Father, ah, yeah, we acknowledge that you are the perfect father. From the moment you thought of us, you held us in your heart and you engraved us in the palm of your hand. You made us wonderful. You rejoice over us with singing your father love and compassion, your protection and provision are endless and unending. And I thank you for where we see your father heart in the fathers around us. There are some unique challenges to being a father in our culture, and there is a terrible pressure that Satan brings against this image-bearing role. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless every father adopted father, honorary father, grandfather, with the best of your spiritual blessings today. Would you let him know that he is not alone in the tasks and the mantle of leadership that you have given him? Would you show him how much you delight in his work and affirm the value of whatever you have given him to do, both as a father and as a child of yours? We pray for the wonderful work that Pregnancy Concerns is going to do in our local community as they support women who face unexpected pregnancies and need somewhere safe to turn. We pray for those who counsel and walk alongside them as they decide what to do. And we pray these gifts we have collected over the last month would be used to bless in a real and tangible way those in need around us to bring life and to bring hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ariel. This morning's call to worship is based on Psalm 68, 4 to 5 and 19. Come, sing praises to God. Rejoice in his presence, for he is our God, a father to the fatherless, and the defender of all who need protection the one in whom the lonely find a home and the prisoner finds release. Bless the Lord, the God of our salvation, who sustains and strengthens us day after day. Let's continue in worship. Will you please stand with us? <clears throat> 
passed away. If they are still at the mention of His name, they'll say, My God is still the same. Blessed of all, if they stay still at the mighty sound of praise, they'll say, My God is still the same. When did He break His promise? When did His kindness fail? Never has, never will, my God is still the same. When did He lose His power? When did His mercy change? Never has, never will, my God is still the same. Thank you, Heather, and thank you for the wor to the worship team for leading us in worship this morning and reminding us of God's faithfulness, his love, his unchanging character and provision for us. Well, I have the opportunity to preach to you guys this morning, and I'm so excited. 
We're more than halfway through our sermon series on spiritual formation. And uh, this behind us is one of the images that we've seen to help us understand the process. Would you mind putting it up for me? Not that one, the next one. There we go. Thank you. Um, so we've talked about, oh, I better put this down. I better put it where I won't kick it. There we go. So we've talked about how God uh, forms and transforms us. We've talked about the Holy Spirit, how he oversees the whole process. And then we started looking at the six tools that the Spirit uses in this process. So David preached on listening prayer. And last week, Stacy preached on worship. And as I've mentioned before, each week, I add some additional notes on a blog post on our website. And so it's kind of just a little, a few other thoughts, reading material, uh, spiritual exercises. So you're welcome to check those out. And this week, I am going to preach on the role of the church in our spiritual formation. So I have a long strip of paper. There's the picture hanging on the wall upstairs. From time to time, when my two girls were little, Craig and I would have them stand back straight up against the wall, and we would mark their height. So you can see, well, maybe you can't see very well, all those little marks up there. Both girls on one page. Once in a while, Craig and I might say, hey, I think you've grown and we would measure them against the paper to see. Our youngest daughter would measure herself against her oldest sister to see if she was taller or shorter than her sister at the same age, you know, competition even in this. And as they got older and closer to my height, they would also start measuring themselves against me. Back to back, right shoulder straight, and as the height difference dwindled, um, the little things started to matter. Was I wearing slippers with heels? Were they in shoes? Was I standing straight enough with my chin up? Or was I like on my tippy toes because I don't want them to be taller than me? Uh, yeah, these little advantages became key to the winning am I taller than you yet battle. You know, sadly, I must tell you now that I am the shortest person in my family. <laughs> yes. Danica, my youngest, has just edged out above me over the last few months and uh, in heels. Like, have you seen her heels? She's like this. So it's kind of sad and kind of fun, right? Because it's the key marker to maturity, isn't it? That sudden sprouting up of your kid or when you meet a friend's child that you haven't seen in a while and you say, Hey, when did you get so tall? You're taller than your dad. What we really mean is that measurement shows that they're growing up. So how do we measure how we are growing up to be more like Christ? What measuring stick do we use? And what role does the church play in all of this? So for answers, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And let's read it together. Well, not out loud. Read it with me. I'll read it and you can like follow along. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. 
be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So what is the measuring stick that we use to keep track of our deepening maturity in Christ? The full measure of Christ himself. The Holy Spirit is working to form us so that we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And how do we get there? by being formed and shaped through the body of Christ. Not only is Paul saying that the body of Christ, what we call the church, is a critical part of how we are transformed into Christ's likeness, but we're gonna see here that we cannot be fully mature without it. So let's start at the top. Verses one and two. Paul starts his chapter with a therefore unless you're reading the NIV version, which instead adds it in the middle of the sentence as a then. So when you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, why is it there? Paul is building in this case, he's building chapter four on his previous thoughts and prayer in chapter three. Ephesians 3.10 tells us that God's intent is now through the church that his manifold wisdom be made known to all rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He then prays for the church in Ephesus that they would be empowered to do just that, that they would know God's love and power so that God may be glorified in the world through the church and through Christ Jesus forever. The church is God's witness to the spiritual realm and to the world. So then, or therefore, live a life worthy of this calling you've received. What kind of life lives up to this task? Well, Paul mentions four key virtues. Be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, be loving. 
Paul's talking specifically here about our relationships with each other in a church setting. And this is made clear in the context from chapter 3, and then again as we look at the following verses. The Greek word makrothumia, translated in verse 2 as patience, is the Greek word characteristically used to mean patience with each other rather than patience in our circumstances. It means someone who can endure unpleasant people with graciousness and endure foolishness without irritation, as one commentator I read said. So when my family goes to visit my mom in the country, the neighbor's dog comes by to visit us. Actually, the dog travels all over the place in the country. And we love that because we don't have pets and we really love dogs. And so we love it when Daisy visits. Except she's getting older. And so one day, last year, a couple years ago, I think, the cutest black lab puppy came with Daisy. I mean, she was the most adorable ever, right? And so the puppy, though, loved Daisy, loved her, was jumping on her and nipping at her and landing on her back and just wanted her to play. And this puppy didn't just do that for a couple minutes, right? Like did it all day long. Daisy was very stoic about the whole thing. She could have easily turned and taken a chunk out of that puppy, but with dignity and grace, she showed patience. She showed macrothumia. The Greek word for love used in verse 2 is not the Greek word philo, which means brotherly love and friendship, which you might expect here, given that we're talking about each other. Instead, the word Paul uses is agape, which means a sacrificial love from our will that intentionally desires another's highest good. Or as one commentator I read, called unconquerable benevolence. The church is expected to demonstrate the power of God and be a witness to the world as we model in our community these four great virtues. This is by no means the only place that Paul talks about this, not just as individuals, but as a church. In every letter, actually, Paul wrote to the church, he talked about this. Paul exhorts them to live and work together this way. Colossians 3 12 to 14, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgive one another, and over all these virtues, put on love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It does not easily anger, keeps no record of wrongs. Paul's not talking about marriage, which is where we usually hear this passage. He's not talking to individuals. This chapter sits smack dab in his discussion to the church on how to be the church, how to use their gifts, how to organize their services, how to be responsible to each other in community. Where did this idea originate? Jesus. Jesus in John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. 
if you love one another. William Barclay, the commentator I mentioned earlier, writes, these four great virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, and love, depend on the obliteration of the self. So long as the self is in the center of things, unity can hardly exist. In our culture, a preoccupation with the self has developed into a fractured world. Even Western church culture has the temptation to be about the individual, our personal preferences of preaching and worship or what time the service starts. Hardly surprising then that we are not used to thinking of the church in this way, as a place where transformation takes place, the laying down of self and the practice of these virtues. I'm gonna turn the page. So Paul builds on this foundation in verses three to six as he asks the church to have unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He expands this by listing the ways in which we're unified. We are one body, we have one Holy Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The English word faith uh, here has become synonymous with intellectual assent or a set of beliefs. We have faith, so we believe, we believe, we have faith. Uh, but this would be a misunderstanding of the Greek word here, which is pistis. Pistis has a much broader meaning uh, in the Greek that includes commitment, sworn fidelity, uh, embodied obedience, loyalty, and it's actually better understood as the word allegiance. Paul's telling us we are now one body with one faith, one body with one allegiance, one loyalty. And perhaps that's a clue as to how we can disagree intellectually while still living out our unity in love. We are united in allegiance to the same Lord. You know, there's another word the apostles often call the church in their letters, family. And I say the word family, and on one hand, we picture the ideal, right? A loving, foundational place. We can be our truest selves and be loved for who we are. People who are committed to loving each other and being there for us our whole lives. And that is the ideal, but many families fall short of this. In the best case, being a family means a long, slow intimacy that creates some wonderful moments, but also creates irritation <laughs> and tension, right? Families are the place where we experience our most painful wounds and hopefully a most loyal love. Craig and I have been blessed we have his parents close by. They were living in Surrey when the kids are little and they live in Abbotsford now. They helped with babysitting when our kids were small. We celebrate birthdays together. Yesterday they came and we spent the day celebrate Father's Day. We go on vacations together. They're amazing. And any of you who are raising kids or have raised kids know how awesome it is when your family is nearby and can help out when the kids are little and you just need a break. And you know, though my mom lives out of town, she's the first person I call when I need prayer. She loves us and she loves my family and she lifts us 
to the throne of God in wonderful ways. And I see the power of her prayer in our lives. But I will say too that Craig and I have both been really hurt in our family of origin. There are wounds there that still hurt, that still show up in new ways. And there are wounds in the family of God too, aren't there? And I'm not talking about the serious injustices like abuse, those are a different subject. I'm talking about the normal wear and tear that just comes from working together over time in close proximity. I mean, why else would our unity in love be enough of a miracle that it would be a witness to the world? Because it's hard. In verse three of our passage, Paul asks us to make every effort is an effort. But the family of God can also be a place of healing and generosity, a place where we are really seen and loved. The long, slow process of being transformed into Christ within a church community requires commitment to that community and a willingness to surrender to the process and stick it out. How can we learn to forgive one another, like it says in Colossians 3, if we never have a disagreement and then learn to forgive? Some Christians find it easier to just leave their church, and it is easier. But I wonder if it's a bit like getting off the potter's wheel rather than allowing ourselves to be shaped. Richard Foster puts it this way, essential to our growth and grace is a community life where there is loving, nurturing accountability. Christlikeness is not merely the work of the individual, rather it grows out of the matrix of a loving fellowship. We are the body of Christ together, called to watch over one another in love. Unfortunately, in our day, there is an abysmal ignorance of how we as individuals and as a community of faith actually move forward into Christ-likeness. You may be thinking now, okay, but why the church specifically? I mean, can't I just do this anywhere, find a group of friends and go out and be Jesus to people? But that's a good question, and Paul answers it. We need the church specifically because it's uniquely designed and gifted as a place where we are formed to be like Jesus. Paul talks about this in verses seven to 12. So he's talked about the ways we're unified in the spirit, and now he addresses our diversity in the spirit. Each of us are given grace to give to our community. We are one body with many graces, this is an awesome passage, and I wish I could do Paul justice here, but he uses so much wordplay, he can pack so much meaning in here, I could preach a whole sermon on this alone. But I just wanna point out a few things. The word grace. Paul uses the word here to refer to us. The people in our family of faith. We are the grace that has been given to the church. We think of the word grace, the Greek word here is used charis, uh, and we think of it more in the context of God's grace and his salvation. Right? By grace you have been saved through faith, or we're not under the law, but under grace. Uh, but the word for spiritual gifts is charisma. It's the same root word, 
charisma, the gift, means grace made specific, a gift. We are to be grace to each other, each bringing unique graces as God and Jesus has given us. Heather read a little bit from Psalm 68, and I love that because Paul also quotes from Psalm 68 here. He refers to Jesus as a conquering king, ascending to his throne in triumph after defeating the enemy. In the original Old Testament passage, actually, the triumphant king climbs to the top of the hill and then he receives tributes from his people as is his due. But here, Paul changes the word from receive gifts to give. Jesus is a king who descended from heaven to live with us as a man, share our sorrows, share our sufferings. He is a king who has conquered sin and death and risen in triumph, ascending back to his throne as conqueror. And now he has turned and redescended back to us, bringing us gifts. When Jesus lived among us as a man, he was limited to being in one place at one time because of his physical body. But now, through his Holy Spirit, he can fill the whole world at once with his presence and his gifts. In verse 11, Paul lists some of the graces given by the Spirit for us to be to each other. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We have other more complete lists of gifts in Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12. So why does Paul highlight these ones specifically here? Because they are the kinds of gifts that when exercised, when given, they'll help other people exercise their gifts. They are graces that are help equip the church. The word equip here comes from a Greek verb that means to mend or make whole, to repair. It was used to describe surgery that set a broken limb or joint back into place. To equip is to make each member whole, to care for each other and help us to become who we ought to be. Did you know that you are a gift to this church? You are grace given to us and we are grace to be given to you. Is that not amazing? Hmm. What a gift. Last week I led in worship and after Stacy's sermon, I led you in an acapella singing of the dexology. Stacy had talked about how worship is for each other too and that sometimes we are singing over each other or singing for each other when we can't sing ourselves. And last week when you sang the doxology, I, um, I stopped singing and I just let your singing be a grace and a blessing over me. So getting a little teary when I think of that. Thank you. That is such a gift that only happens in a family like this. So what's the result of this intermingling of relationship and gift? The body of Christ is built up in unity and the knowledge of Jesus, and we reach full maturity 
as measured against the marker of the full stature of Christ. That is the measuring stick. So the benefits of this, Paul outlines in two different similes. A picture of what we won't look like when we live like this, and a glimpse into what we could be. Verses 14 and 15. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. The writer of Hebrews uses the same image of an infant in Hebrews 5.13. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Another reason we are to be in a family of Christ is knowledge. Bible teaching is everywhere online now, and much of it is excellent, and some of it is not so excellent. <laughs> Good Bible teaching is vital, and we need also the critical role of our brothers and sisters in our family to take that good information, what we learn in our heads, and help apply it to our hearts and our lives. Because that is knowledge, that is where we are transformed. We are to speak the truth in love. The author of Hebrews finishes his thought by saying, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The mature have been trained by practicing what they have heard. Speaking the truth in love. What an abused phrase that has been in church history. Family is where we get told the truth and hopefully in love. If you know Craig and me well, it might not surprise you to hear that of the two of us, Craig is actually the better storyteller. I'd like to say he has more interesting stories, um, but the truth is he's just funnier. <laughs> it's true. Um, one night at dinner, Danica asked Craig to tell some more stories of his growing up years. And I asked her, hey, how come you don't ask me for my, more of my stories? And she said, well, they're just not good. <laughs> uh, ouch, right? Um, but it really is the truth that once you get Craig going, he is really fun to listen to. By the way, she knows that I'm telling this story and she knows that I've just thrown her under the bus and it's all good. Um, speaking the truth in love is a balanced ability and we don't always get it right. But again, that is why we have been told to be patient with each other and to forgive. The second image that Paul uses may sound familiar. In verse 16, he gives a picture of a body knitted and shaped together. This little verse is a short form version of 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 20, a letter Paul wrote to another church a few years earlier. And so perhaps the Ephesians are already familiar with this analogy. I'd like to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, all of its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. 
Now, if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. We all grow and mature together. Isn't that a fascinating idea? If we're one body, but one body part refuses to grow, then the whole body doesn't work properly. So from Christ, the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So let's put some of this into practice. What does this look like? Well, I think this might be a good definition of church. A group of people who are dedicating their lives to being transformed into the image of Christ who need to be together to do it. It's not about the building. It's not about the music or the preaching or the numbers. Paul sidesteps several questions from churches on what to do, what meat to eat, what leader to follow. Paul's greatest concern is about how we treat each other while we are making those decisions how we love each other. And two, this is why. Why do you show up on Sunday morning? Why do you say yes to serving coffee or helping with sound or teaching kids upstairs or helping out with student ministries? Being a part of a family of believers is about relationships and serving in your gifts and sticking it out so that you are formed and shaped to be more like Jesus. We meet together on Sunday mornings so that we remember who we are and who we are in relationship to the head of our body, Christ. And we do it consistently because it is a spiritual discipline that helps us to surrender ourselves. Three, yes, family can be tough. <laughs> People will inevitably disappoint you but perhaps instead of seeing it as a reason to ditch church, we could see it as part of our formation as brothers and sisters. We are loving each other well, we're trying to, and we can only love well when we're practicing doing so over the long haul. Family can also be a place of beauty and grace and wonderful faithfulness. We stay and we make that happen. Four. Church is local and personal and collective. One of the hardest parts of COVID was that we, Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship, we were distanced, we were alone, isolated in our houses. And that's when I realized just how important proximity is to community. Do you have a local group of people who know you personally are speaking truth to you as you speak into their lives, who bless you with their gifts as you grace them with yours, where you are practicing how to love gently, patiently, humbly in community. So how do we see this here at Eagle Ridge? Maybe you're part of a community group or Bible study. Maybe you're in men's breakfast or the women's ladies group on um, women's ladies group. On, Thursday on Tuesday mornings. During COVID, we had a Zoom anchored group 
so that people could get to know each other this way. And if there isn't a group for you, maybe you would consider starting one. Or perhaps community for you means that you're actively involved in a ministry where you have developed meaningful relationships and have conversations where people know you and can provide encouragement and accountability for you. There are lots of ways that we form community here at ERBF and it's beautiful to see. And when I say collective, I'm referring to the fact that the church is a patchwork of people who come from different life experiences, have different points of view, different cultures and languages and ages and political leanings. Even the church in the first century consisted of mismatched and culturally neglected groups of people. And yet, when we are the church, we put aside these things that are so divisive in our world that increasingly dehumanize the other. And we take communion, we love, we serve each other, we find common ground in our allegiance to Jesus alone. <laughs> where, else, where else can that happen? Well, hopefully in the family of origin, right, that we didn't opt into. But otherwise, in our daily lives, we often select what we read, the people we socialize with, or the news that we follow because it makes us comfortable and reaffirms our own way of looking at things. The church is a place where you choose to belong, where this may not happen. And that is a gift and a challenge. This is how the Holy Spirit uses the church to form us. If the goal of transformation is to measure up to the complete fullness of Christ, then committing to a body of believers is not optional. And so many of you are doing this. You're planting roots, you're growing, you're getting involved, you're loving each other. I am so blessed by our church. You know, during COVID, there were churches in turmoil for masking and vaccines. A friend of mine pastors a church which had a few of its board members actually leave because my friend complied with government rules about masking. They left temporarily, he was told, just until things got back to normal. And they went to other churches who defied authority. Now I know there are people here who sat on very different sides of this issue. People who told me they didn't agree with masking and vaccines. You know what? You came to church anyway. And we joined together every Sunday with masks on. You were an example of members of one body called to peace. Over two years, we each put on humility and patience and we bore with one another in love. Because if we are being formed like Christ, who is God, and God is love, then we are also being formed to be love. And we need each other to do it. As a quiet response to this message, I'd like to put some words to an old song on the screen. Peter Schultz was a Catholic priest and he led a youth choir in Chicago during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. He wanted a song the choir could sing at ecumenical interracial events and he couldn't find one that, they couldn't find one. So this is what he wrote. 
And instead of singing it together, which we often do, I'd like to sit with these words in listening silence and see what the Spirit would say to each of us. I'd like to invite the worship team up now as I pray. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your mercy and your grace and your love. It is because of your love for us that we can love each other. It is because of the grace given to us through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, that we can be grace to each other. We see where Satan is trying to tear apart the church's witness to the world, where churches and denominations are more busy fighting each other than unifying in love. And we repent, Lord, in sorrow for any ways in which we have participated in Satan's schemes. We claim the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell won't be able to stand against the church. May the body of believers glorify you as we love each other. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us in that love? Help each of us to surrender to you what needs surrendering, to accept any invitation you are offering to us, and would you please help us to be the beautiful family that you have it in your heart for us to be. Amen. Amen.